the pure word of God, the 10th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Brethren, I know I could say, I may say, I probably have said that several sections in the book of Hebrews are my favorite. And if I'm confused, will you allow me confusion as to what the favorite portion of Scripture is? I love Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> and I love verses 19 through 39. And if my throat will hold out, I want to try to impart some of that enthusiasm for a Savior that's a judge. I never had much respect or interest or love for the Savior taught in the world. I heard him every day from the day I was born. I heard him before I was born. My parents sang to me while I was in my mother's womb about the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved him as they knew him, but they didn't know him in truth. And it, that Savior didn't mean much to me. And it wasn't until I was about 19 years of age that I met the real Savior. And the real Savior is pictured in Hebrews chapter 10, brethren. He has by His blood provided an easy way by which we with boldness might approach unto Almighty God. But that same Savior, upon all those that will despise His blood and count the blood of His covenant an unholy thing, that is a common thing, He will pour upon them fire and a tempest and destroy them. My Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior I worship is not a whimpering, crying, effeminate excuse for a man. The Savior we worship is a confident, victorious, reigning King and Lord. He is both Prince and Messiah and Christ and Lord and King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Almighty God. And I love that Savior. I want to get to heaven to see Him and to forget this wretched place. Don't you? Forget this wretched body. I'm not picking on you any more than I am myself. God have mercy on us. I want to get to heaven and see Jesus Christ. I'd have never said those words. I thought anyone that talked that way was sick on religion. I want to see Jesus. You say it sounds charismatic. Go stick your head in a, a porcelain pot of water. You say it sounds Arminian. Let it sound Arminian. The Bible sounds Arminian to me in some respects. I want to see Jesus. There's a faithful man. There's a godly man. Amen. And boy, I want to be in his army and march behind him. There's going to be a whole lot of smoke coming up. <laughs> and it's going to be a very victorious march. Wouldn't it have been great to be in a victorious army? March through Berlin. March through Rome in World War II behind a pat and he's up there swaggering away with his pearl-handled revolvers. Or pearl-handled 45. Brethren, I get mixed up. Wild Bill Hickok. George Patton, aren't they all the same? Jesus Christ is going to be riding on a white horse in front of an army, and he's going to be trampling everyone under his feet, and the blood's going to be spraying everywhere. He's going to be victorious, and his name will be called the Word of God. I want to be in that host. And he, you say, how does that have to do with Hebrews chapter 10? Watch. Jesus may have laid in a manger once, 
A sweet little woman named Mary once might have wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Shepherds may have once knelt and worshipped him. Wise men once might have offered him gifts of incense. He might have been mocked. He might have been scourged, despised, and rejected of men. But there is a day coming, and he's already done it to a great extent, in which he will reject men. And they'll rue the day they ever rejected him when he rejects them and pours out his judgment upon them. Look now at Hebrews chapter 10. We have, running through the 18th verse, a doctrinal discussion, instruction, systematic theology that Paul has laid out from chapter 1 through 10.18 of the glory of Jesus Christ. And he has interspersed for brief moments the fact that these Jews ought not to apostatize, to fall away, to depart from the truth, to sin against the gospel, and to go back under Judaism. But he's laid out the superiority of Jesus Christ and the New Testament gospel religion in every way that a Jew would want to hear it compared. And he's done that. And it's a glorious comparison. If you haven't enjoyed Hebrews so far, the Word of God doesn't have anything for you to enjoy. Because the Word of God is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that is what has been presented so far. He's a glorious Savior. We have the most glorious form of religion the world has ever seen. It's the last form the world will ever see. And it's the eternal form of religion. This kingdom we've received, this covenant we've received, can also be called the last covenant. Because it is the covenant of reality. It is how God will be worshipped in heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we get to this 18th verse, and Paul concludes by saying, Now where remission of these is, brethren, there is no more offering for sin. Now that ends all the need for the Old Testament system of religion. If sins have been remitted, put away, purged, forgiven, and forgotten, what do you need a bull for? What do you need a sheep for? What do you need a priest for? What do you need a tabernacle for? What do you need a veil for, an altar for? All that stuff disappeared. And now he's turning to a doctrinal presentation as he so often does. You'll remember, and I would like to turn there, but to save time I will not. Romans chapter 11 and verse 36 ends with amen. And we know what Romans 1 through 11 covers. The glory of the predestinating, sovereign, independent grace of God. But at Romans 11.36, Paul says, Amen. And then in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you, Therefore, brethren, everything we learn about Christ ought to drive us to obedience. Stopping with Romans 11 or emphasizing Romans 11 is missing the import of the gospel. And that is to move us to serve Him. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 3 in the last verse ends with, Amen. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 begins with, Therefore we ought to walk as we've just had presented before us what Christ has done for us. We ought to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we've been called. And right here is that point in the book of Hebrews. Right between verses 18 and 19, he ends. And from this point on, we're not going to see a whole lot described. There's not going to be much in the way of comparison between New Covenant and Old Covenant. Having said that all sins are remitted and that the Old Testament form of religion is no longer necessary, 
He then takes up in verses 19 through 22 a short exhortation to personal religion. We can draw nigh to God. Remember, in the Jewish system, who could draw nigh to God? The high priest. How often? Once a year. <laughs> That's a pitiful form of religion. The first appeal will be, we can have a close personal communion and relationship with God and let us have it. Verse 19, having therefore, the therefore is there because Hebrews through chapter 10 and verse 18 has set Jesus Christ up as the greater, the preeminent one, the means, the finished sacrifice by which we might approach unto God. Having had everything set aside of the Old Testament religion, therefore, brethren, we ought to have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We have it in Christ. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Could we have a little air in here? Isn't it hot and stuffy? Or is that me? I'm hot and stuffy. I'll suffer if I see anyone fading on me. I want someone to, I'm going to ask for the air conditioner. I don't want you fading this morning. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. What is the holiest? Is it a little compartment? Ten cubits by ten cubits? In a tabernacle? No. Is it the New Testament church? No. What is the holiest? It's the presence of God in heaven. We have the means by which we can go into the very presence of God. And how should we go? Timidly? Infrequently? Boldly. It's already been taught to us in Hebrews chapter 4. Remember? Chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore in that case. Because we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Jesus is in the presence of God for us now. He's already in the holiest of all for us. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That is the presence of God. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's called the throne of God, where God sits. In order for your understandings to picture it to some degree, there's a place where God resides more particularly than other places. That throne of grace in the Old Testament was called the mercy seat. Mercy seat. What's a seat? It's a chair, some place where people sit. It's a mercy seat. Throne of what? Throne of grace and mercy seat. Same thing. It's the place where God is at, where you go to obtain mercy or grace, which are the same thing. We might, we now have boldness because Jesus Christ is there for us. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's why there was blood in the Old Testament, simply to show a picture that it was the blood of Jesus Christ that opened up the holiest in heaven for us. Blood has been sprinkled before Almighty God. We can now come boldly into the presence of God and call upon God ourselves. You say, I knew that before this Sunday morning. Hebrews didn't. Can you try to imagine being a Hebrew? How many got to enter in to the holiest? Remember the use of the words here. This book is written to Hebrews primarily. They hadn't been in the holiest. They weren't even sure what the holiest looked like. 
except when they read the Old Testament, they hadn't been there yet. This is startling news. This is fantastic news for a Hebrew that we now have boldness to enter into the holiest. We can go right to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can have a clean conscience about going. They always had a conscience of sin. Every time they prayed, they never felt forgiveness. Why? The blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin. Can you imagine praying and never feeling forgiveness? You know what it's like praying when, you're, when you don't feel forgiven. You feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. This is great news. Verse 20, By a new and living way, that is into the holiest, by Jesus, a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. There was something that kept the holiest covered that a priest had to go up to and remove in order to get into the holiest, and it was the veil. What was rent and torn in order for us to get into the presence of God? The ve that veil didn't open the presence of God. The veil of Christ's flesh. It opened the figurative presence of God, but His flesh, that is to say, His flesh. When the flesh of Jesus Christ was rent, that opened the way into heaven. And the veil ripping from top to bottom, and brethren, that veil was 60 feet high in Herod's Holy of Holies. The temple that he had added to, oh, Zerubbabel built a pitiful little thing. Herod made it the eighth wonder of the world. It was a huge thing. I mean, Titus didn't want to touch that with fire when he destroyed Jerusalem. It was a wonder. It was impregnable militarily. God hadn't given it over to Titus, and that's a story in itself. We've covered that before. God tore a 60-foot curtain from top to bottom. Now, that tells you, no one, the brethren, no one walked into the holiest with a ladder. And the Jews all knew that. And that thing was ripped from top to bottom, and the Spirit of God takes the time to tell us from top to bottom, not bottom to top. Yeah, men could rip it from bottom to top, but not from top to bottom. And the real thing figured by that veil, according to this text, is the flesh of Jesus Christ. When it was rent and, it, and His blood was shed, His body broken, as we break the bread at our communion service, so the veil was rent, which opened up the way into God's presence. A new and living way. It's new. It hadn't existed before. Living, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. It's a living way. It's not a priest that dies. It's not a, it's not a way that's going to end with death. It's a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us. And how did He consecrate it? But with His blood as everything under the law was consecrated, almost everything under the law was dedicated with blood. Verse 21, And having an high priest over the house of God, all those who now call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are brought into union, Jew, Gentile, bond, free, male, female, are made a great house of God. In the Bible, this relationship is called a family. It's called a church. It's called a city. It's called a nation. Descriptive terms describing a group of individuals that God has redeemed. Now, we can look at this place and see a, a house of God. That house of God could be four things. It could be the temple in Jerusalem. That was always the house of God. That's where God dwelt. It was His house. 
he thanked David and Solomon for their efforts in building him and house. We know it's not that temple. It could be your human physical body. That's called the house of God. God lives in your bodies like a house. The Spirit of God indwells our physical bodies. It's not that body. That's not under thought here. The house of God is sometimes the local church, like 1 Timothy 3.15, which is the house of God because God inhabits every local church by His Spirit, which is His candlestick. So a local church by itself is the house of God. It is called the temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But the house under consideration here is a house that has re a relationship with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And remember Paul, when he writes Hebrews, was not writing to a local church. Paul, when he writes Hebrews, is writing to Jews scattered everywhere. He's writing a national epistle to believers of a certain nationality. And they no longer have a national tie to Israel. They now have a, a national tie to a nation that supersedes that. And that is the nation or city or house or temple described in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 when the apostle writes, But ye, speaking to those same people, ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. This is the house of God that we will that He will inhabit for eternity. Churches come and go. He puts His Spirit in a church. He takes His Spirit out of churches. But there is an eternal house in the heavens, and it's called the heavenly Jerusalem, if you want to call it a city. It's called the Bride of Christ. When you read in the book of Revelation about this glorious city appearing on the scene and having 12 pillars, which are the 12 apostles, it is describing this conglomeration of all those whose names are written in heaven. And it also involves an innumerable company of angels. It's the whole redeemed and unredeemed, but elect, angels that are gathered together into a great house, which will make up all eternity. It will be the temple of God. It will be His house. It will be His family for eternity. Over that house, we have a high priest. Now the apostle saying, having... Since we have boldness to enter into the holiest where God dwells, since we have a new and living way, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what is the, what is the conclusion of this first exhortation? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is an appeal for personal religion personal communion with God. Now we're going to get into mutual exhortation in just a couple of verses. But before you can ever do any good for anyone else, you need to have a personal relationship with God. You need to draw near to God yourself. How will you ever exhort others to draw near to God and not to depart from the living God if you're not close to Him? Let us draw near with a true heart. Now in Psalm 12, we read about a double heart. Lots of double hearts. And these Jews were being threatened right now. These Hebrews were being threatened with a double heart. They had professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and had followed Him. They had suffered great things for His name's sake. And yet, 
They were tempted to go back under the Old Testament religion and make peace with the Jews. They had a double heart. And he's saying, now listen, since all sins have been put away, since we have a bold approach to the presence of God, since we've got a great high priest in a new and living way, let us draw near with a true heart, a pure heart. Did you know the Bible tells you to purify your hearts? You say, I thought Jesus Christ did everything there was in salvation. He did as far as your heart being legally pure, vitally pure, and finally pure. But practically, it's up to you to make it pure. Purify your hearts, ye sinners. Cleanse your hands, ye double-minded. James chapter 4. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If we have faith, if you've learned anything, Paul is appealing now in the first ten chapters, you ought to have full assurance of faith. Let's draw near. Let's draw nigh to that God and not depart from Him and go back under a system that never offered a relationship with God of reality. Don't depart from God to go back under that system. God has put that system away. We have a new one now. And let's approach it boldly. Let's approach it with full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. How can you approach God with full assurance of faith, being a Hebrew, knowing that you're a sinner? Paul is going to make some very neat comparisons here using the words sprinkling and washing. Remember in Hebrews chapter 9, we heard a lot about sprinkling? Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, there is sprinkling. And he goes on to say, How much more shall the blood of Christ purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There were sprinklings under the Old Testament that supposedly prepared a person to enter into the worship of God. But that worship was only figurative. It was only carnal. It wasn't in reality. But Paul is saying, we may approach boldly unto God because a sprinkling has occurred that is in reality. And that is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, he did it legally. It was applied vitally to us. But we practically must recognize that sprinkling. Because notice what he says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. What is that evil conscience? A conscience condemned by its sins, not feeling forgiveness, not knowing forgiveness, not having faith in forgiveness, because that was never offered under the old covenant. Under the new covenant, because we've heard about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can, with our conscience and our understanding, approach to God with full assurance, because our hearts have been sprinkled from their evil conscience. We no longer need to go to God feeling like vile sinners. We may come to God feeling that we've been purged. And that's what makes for boldness. That's what makes for full assurance. A sprinkling, Paul says we've been sprinkled. You Hebrews, if you're really looking for a sprinkling, we've had one. But then he says, and our bodies washed with pure water. <coughs> our bodies washed with pure water. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. Speaking of the Old Covenant, 
which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings. Hebrews 9.10. There were washings under the Old Covenant. And for those Hebrews who are always in their mind comparing the two systems of religion, is there a washing in the New Testament that practically prepares us to approach unto God? What's it called? That prepares us legally, but it doesn't help our consciences. Baptism. We have our bodies washed with pure water. Notice that this is the body. Our bodies have not yet been regenerated. The water here is not the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God has not yet changed our vile bodies. That doesn't happen until the day of glorification and the final resurrection. But remember what's under consideration. Hearts being purged from an evil conscience. The sprinkling of the knowledge of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ does it. And it gives us a clean conscience, doesn't it? Does the blood of Christ and the knowledge of that give you a clean conscience? Can we call a clean conscience a good conscience? Where am I headed? 1 Peter 3.21 Baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. How do you draw near to God? What's the first thing you have to do to draw near to God? Be baptized in the name of His holy child, Jesus Christ, and wash your body in water with the knowledge of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we approach. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience. Your conscience is under conviction until it does what God has said to do to give me answer. God has saved us indeed. He's regenerated us. He's purged our hearts legally. He's applied it vitally. But how do we do it practically? How do we draw nigh to God? What's the first thing always commanded by the apostles? Repent and be baptized and wash your bodies in water. Don't try to stick the Spirit in there, brethren. Because I'll be asking you, has your body sinned? The Holy Spirit has not yet changed your body. That is a day that yet approaches. And this is talking about practically drawing nigh unto God. The Hebrews had not done that. They went through all the ritual and never felt they could make it to God. And now Paul is opening up a way you can come to God, and you did it in your baptism. Let's continue to do it. An exhortation to personal religion and personal privileges. Now let's look at verses 23 through 25. Paul then, drawing from the need and the opportunity and the reasons to why we should have personal religion, encourages us to exhort one another. He says in verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Now when did you first make that? in context. What's the first deed where you make your profession of faith? At baptism. He's just moving right on. Now that we've got personal religion established and that we can boldly come to God, we can fall on our knees and believe that our prayers are making it to the very presence of God and they're fully accepted through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need any other means by which to come to God. We don't need that Old Testament religion. Having established personal, intimate religion with God, he then moves into the relationship we must bear one to another. And this was particularly important for these Hebrews because, brethren, tribulation was coming upon the Hebrew nation, the likes of which the world had never seen nor ever shall see. You say, what about Leningrad during World War II? What about it? What percentage of the 
Soviet population died in Leningrad in World War II. Can you even call it a percent? What percentage of the Jewish population died in the years leading up to and the destruction of Jerusalem? 99? 98? 97? Out of 1.1 million bodies dragged out of the city of Jerusalem and counted by the Romans, there were 97,000 taken captive. And that doesn't count the other cities that had massacres leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. 50,000 a day here, Caesarea. 30,000 a day here, Alexandria. Tremendous persecution against the Hebrew nation. They had coming upon them tribulation that Jesus Christ said the world had never seen and never would see again. Like that upon a group of people separated from others. So the apostle warns in verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Let's draw near to God and let's hold fast our profession. That is the message of Hebrews. The overwhelming message of Hebrews is don't fall away from the gospel. Hang in there against persecution. Hang in there against doubts. Jesus Christ is a superior form of religion in the gospel. Hold fast your profession of faith without wavering. Oh, that's what God's looking for, us not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Oh, those Corinthians were, weren't they? Someone started preaching at Corinth that there was no resurrection of the dead. And Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. They had moved away from the hope of the gospel. The, one of the hopes of the gospel, the, one of the great hopes, is the resurrection of the dead. They had moved away from it. Paul's appealing to these Hebrews, let us hold fast our profession and not move away from it. Let's not even waver in the way we hold it. Hold fast to what you have professed to believe, which is what I have just laid out again in very clear terms, comparing the New Testament to the Old Testament. And what is the great motivation and comfort and encouragement for us to be faithful? For He is faithful that promised. How can we not be faithful when we consider the faithfulness of God? Has God ever let you down? Anybody nod their head, yes. You deserve to be whipped. God's never let you down. Isn't that motivation for us to never let Him down? For He is faithful that promised. Those promises He's left out there for us, the gospel rest, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. The promise He's left out there for us, the eternal inheritance that entereth into the veil, Hebrews chapter 6, which is an anchor for our soul. Those promises God has promised and He is faithful. And with those great promises held out before us, how can we ever depart from Him and be unfaithful to Him or let Him down? Hold fast! It's been the message of the book. Look at chapter 3. Let's look at the, let's just see a couple reminders of holding fast in this book. I've tried to already establish this as the reason for the book of Hebrews, is to convince Hebrews not to depart from New Testament, got the New Testament gospel and to go back under Judaism, but to hold fast to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, but Christ is a son over his own house, Whose house are we if we hold the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm 
unto the end. You have no basis for confidence of eternal life if you don't hold fast. And holding fast means you're not wavering. You're fast stuck to it. And you're holding it tight. Look at verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And Paul's going to come right back to this word confidence in just a few verses. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. That initial rush of enthusiasm for the things of Christ that most of us and probably all of us experienced when we were first converted, when we were first enlightened, illuminated, as Paul will describe it in a few verses, that rush of enthusiasm for the things of Christ ought to be continued without wavering, steadfast. Look at chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. This is the overriding fear and concern of Paul in writing this book. That one verse right there is a summary of what we've covered so far. We have a great high priest in heaven. Let us hold fast our profession. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. After we hold fast our own professions, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. As we are holding fast our own profession, and in particular the Hebrews, indirectly this congregation before me, it is our duty to hold fast ourselves and then to consider each other to help them hold fast and to provoke them to hold fast by bringing forth love and good works. Love being the bond of charity, the bond of perfectness that God has ordained for His churches and good works being all that is expected of New Testament saints. Let us consider one another to provoke to love and to good works. We have to consider one another after drawing near to God ourselves, after holding fast our profession, after our baptism, it's simply not a relationship of walking with God through life. It's walking with God through life and encouraging others to walk faithfully themselves. We then have society responsibilities toward those that God has made us responsible for. And that brings it down to local churches which he will then, he'll immediately take up assembling in general. In a church, in verse 25, how can we provoke others to good works? I've covered some of these points before. The first thing we can do is by example. If you set a good example of holding fast your profession, if you set a good example of love, and if you set a good example of good works in your life, you provoke others by provoking them to emulation, Romans chapter 11, or jealousy, Romans chapter 11. You can provoke others to jealousy by setting a good example. You say, is jealousy good in a Christian church? Brethren, if it's jealousy for good works, it's the greatest thing that could ever infect us. If it's jealousy for good works, to please God as you see someone else pleasing God in their life. Paul prayed for that in Romans chapter 11 that the Gentiles obeying the gospel would provoke the Jews to such jealousy. 
We can do it by example. We can provoke others to good works and to love by warning and rebuking them. Paul told the Roman saints in Romans 15, 14, I am persuaded that you have sufficient knowledge to be able to admonish one another. And by that means we can provoke to love and to good works by warning, rebuking, and admonishing each other. We can provoke to good works by encouraging, commending, and comforting good works as we see them. That encourages and comforts men to be faithful. While the Apostle Paul himself said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 12, he couldn't wait to get to Rome that he might be encouraged and comforted by the mutual faith of the Roman saints with his faith. They'd be able to encourage each other, strengthen their faith by getting together with the saints and considering one another. Romans chapter 1. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Some do not put very much importance on the assembling of the saints together in a local church capacity. There is no other assembly. The Presbyterian church has never assembled. The Primitive Baptist church has never assembled. God has never called for it to assemble. Assemblies take place in a local church. How many times did Paul write and say, when ye are all come together in one place? What is that? An assembly. Who did it? One local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That is the assembly under consideration here. Some don't feel that there's much importance in assembling with the saints. Brethren, our church is unique in the emphasis that's placed on assembling. Do you remember the statistics I've given you, the Southern Baptist Convention? They're wonderful statistics for us. What percentage of the Southern Baptist Convention, and you know they keep very specific and definite membership role of every single person that joins the Southern Baptist Church, what percentage are considered non-resident members? 25%. 247 25% of the Southern Baptist Convention are considered non-resident members. What does a non-resident member mean to a Southern Baptist church? They don't know where they live. They've lost them. Isn't that precious? 24.7% of 13 million people you say, well, surely they haven't lost that many. You're right. They've gone and joined other churches, and so they're, they're counted twice, thrice, four times, whatever. But the church where they started now consider them a non-resident member, and that means and in their own definitions, and I'll show you the articles any time from their own press, we don't know where they're at. Now, of the rest, how many attend on a given Sunday of the resident members? You know, the ones that are still around. Two-thirds of those attend on a given Sunday so that on an average Sunday in an average Southern Baptist church, and I'm dealing with averages, there are 51% 51, 51 of the congregation is there. That is their number. 51% is there assembling with that church for Sunday school. Now, if we were to take the evening service, you know what that would be. It'd be about 25%. And if we took some midweek service, it'd be about 8%, 15%, some pitifully anemic number. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. <clears throat> it is the manner of people today to forsake this assembly. This assembly is important. And the reason for its importance in this place is given following that, but exhorting one another. The reason we get together is to exhort one another, to provoke each other. Do you realize in the space of four hours, and it's never four hours, is it? Many of us arrive at 9.30 in the morning. Many of us don't leave until 1 o'clock. We arrive at 5.30 in the evening many times and don't leave till 9 o'clock. That sounds more like seven or eight hours to me. But in that time that we have together, we are able to provoke and exhort each other to love, to good works, and not to forsake or to let go or to depart from their profession of faith. We do it by example. In seven hours, you have plenty of opportunity for example. We do it by warning and admonishing. We do it by encouraging and commending. That is why God has ordained local assemblies. The preaching of the gospel could be done privately. The administering of the elements could be done privately. I could cart around the communion elements in a little lunchbox like the Catholic priests do. But we don't do that. God has ordained societies called local churches where we can all help each other stand against the temptations and tribulation of this life. But these verses are particularly pressing upon Hebrews. Let us Hebrews hold fast our profession. Let us Hebrews consider one another. Let us Hebrews not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some Hebrews is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. As ye see the day approaching. What day was approaching that would require Hebrews to band together and so much more so in order to maintain their profession of faith and not to depart from the living God and go back under Judaism. What day approaches that can be seen? There's only one day. There's only one day. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming cannot be seen. Why, the whole Bible speaks of it as being like a thief in the night. How, when was the last time you saw a thief in the night? For, an illustrate, for illustrative purposes. You don't see a thief in the night. Jesus Christ is going to return the second time at the exact moment when men are not expecting Him to return because there haven't been signs. The signs that were given are peace and safety. I mean, when the peace and safety is rampant, Jesus Christ will return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are no signs given to let us know the time of Jesus Christ's second appearing is arriving. Because Jesus Christ has left that date to Himself. And He's not given signs. He is going to come at a thief in the night so that every generation of Christians from the days of Christ's first coming to the days of His second coming all have to live like He could come that day. This is a day that you see. Now He says, and so much the more. What does so mean? It's an adverb. 
in the manner specified. And in the manner, or for the reason, specified. Why were they to give so much more emphasis to mutual exhortation and encouragement? As the reason specified, ye see the day approaching. As does not mean when in this place. As does not mean when. By habit and by false teaching, we have read this, and so much the more when ye see the day approaching. And you know, because we're 2,000 years closer to the day than the Hebrews, we ought to really be assembling together and exhorting one another. Ever heard me say that? God have mercy on me. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Was there a day that was particularly pressing upon the Hebrew nation that was approaching, and brethren, it was very close, that was approaching with rapidity, and that Jesus Christ set forth as the greatest day any Jew should ever worry about. Listen, brethren, if the, if the day of Jesus Christ's second coming is approaching, that is not a time that we're going to need a whole lot of mutual exhortation. The time of Jesus Christ's second coming as it approaches will exhort us by itself. If we can see signs, if, if we could see signs that the return of Jesus Christ was just around the corner, I wouldn't need to exhort you as much because you'd know it was at hand. But what about a day approaching that wouldn't bring so much salvation as it would bring judgment and tribulation? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. We know what that's talking about. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. Immediately upon the writing by the apostles about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there were some false letters circulated. That's a letter as from us. Paul's signature applied to it, and it wasn't from Paul. A spirit... They were troubled in their own minds. They were troubled by word of mouth that Jesus Christ was going to appear in the scene at any time. Paul said, no, he is not. Because we have a few general events to take place first. And he goes on to describe the great falling away in apostasy from the truth of the gospel and the setting up of the man of sin and son of perdition. He was not going to come immediately. Peter preached in 2 Peter chapter 3 that Jesus Christ would take so long returning that there would be scoffers saying, where is the sign of His coming? Where is the sign of His coming? From the foundation of the world, it's been the same. Where is He? Where is He? There'd be scoffers arising that He's never going to return. God must be dead. We've lived to see days like that. Christ's return has no signs. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 13 concluding the parable of the ten virgins, introducing the parable of Christ and the talents, and then Christ coming in His glory and the separating all nations before Him. Verse 13, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. You don't know the day or nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Paul then preaches, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
Peter preaches, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, that the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming, when he will burn up the elements as we know them and usher in a new heavens and a new earth, will be like a thief in the night. Because of the great time span between the preaching of Christ and his second coming, there were to not to be signs given that would promote lethargy. They were to be general enough and vague enough that people would be watching. He's going to come as a thief. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case with the destruction of Jerusalem. That was not the case at all. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and this is Jesus Christ the judge. Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. How do you know that summer is nigh? How do you know that summer is near? How do you know summer is coming right around the corner? You're able to look at the fig tree and see tender branches and leaves coming forth. And you're able to see the leaves coming forth, and you know that the day of summer is approaching, or summertime is approaching. Verse 33, So likewise ye, who's Jesus addressing, Gentiles or Hebrews? Hebrews. He's a minister of the circumcision. So likewise ye, Hebrews, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That text there, Matthew 24 and verse 35, is not so much a text of proving the preservation of the Scriptures as it is telling those Jews, I don't care how secure you think you are, when I get done with you, all of this will have come to pass and heaven and earth might disappear before your city is ever saved because I'm going to destroy it. But notice the important lesson. Matthew 24, from verse 3 all the way down through this chapter, we have a description of events that were to take place. I mean, they range from earthquakes to famines. They range from people apostatizing from the truth to saints betraying each other and turning each other over to the authorities. It includes armies approaching Jerusalem. All those things were to be signs that when the saints of the, in the Jewish nation saw the signs, they were to flee Jerusalem and hide because the judgment was coming. And Jesus said in verse 21, Then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. God put a speedy ending to the destruction of Jerusalem in order for the preservation of His elect that were hiding in the mountains around Judea. That's where the Savior told them to flee when the armies approached. Read it in Mark 13, Luke 21. And he shortened those days. But believe me, brethren, he said here the tribulation was to be so great 
that the world had never seen the likes of it nor ever would, like this on a nation of people, and that if it wasn't for him shortening it, even the elect wouldn't be saved from the tremendous tribulation that would arise. Now, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. We're so used to reading it from a 1988 Gentile perspective, we forget and miss the lesson of the book. And there is a practical lesson to be drawn from this, but we miss the most important event in the New Testament that's taken place when we read a book written to Jews, and that is the destruction of their temple, priesthood, religion, house, city, nation, everything. As ye see the day approaching. I, mean, I wonder why he didn't describe it anymore. I wonder why he didn't define it. They'd been taught about this day so many times they didn't need to learn a whole lot more about it. Why the prophet spoke of it, Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks determined on thy people. The prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and desolations are determined until the end of the war. Desolations are determined upon the city of Jerusalem. God had determined to destroy that city. Daniel prophesied of it. Joel prophesied of the great and terrible day of the Lord coming after the outpouring of His Spirit. Malachi, you're close to Malachi. Turn back to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. A great day had been prophesied many times. Paul didn't have to elaborate. Jesus Christ had taught it. The apostles after Christ taught it. The prophets before Christ taught it. Here's Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. No wonder Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29, our God is a consuming fire because he's using the language of the prophets. The Jews were intimately familiar with this language. When Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant. Do I even need to elaborate on those words? Jesus came and introduced the new covenant. He is the messenger, the mediator, the surety of the covenant, the testator. When he came to his temple, that temple that was in Jerusalem was the temple of Christ. Christ said himself as he drove out the money changers, ye have made my father's house a den of thieves. It was his house. But he destroyed that house for a new house. And he had warned of that day right here. Who shall stand and abide? Look at Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. When was that fulfilled? At the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And when did Elijah the prophet come? But in the ministry of John the Baptist. And did John the Baptist know that that Jewish Hebrew nation was about to be destroyed when he came on the scene? Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. These Hebrews 
had been given the warning. Remember, the Hebrews written in, in the book of Hebrews, addressed in the book of Hebrews, were not Hebrews that didn't believe on Jesus Christ. They believed on Jesus Christ. They knew what Christ had taught. They knew full well what was coming. They were considering going back under the Old Testament. They knew what Christ had taught. They knew what John the Baptist had taught. Look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. This is the Elijah that Malachi spoke of. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he would come. He came right here. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What wrath? What wrath? The wrath of God that came upon, upon the Jewish nation in 70 A.D. Holding your finger there, you need reassurance further? Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to get to it in just a second, but I might as well move ahead. See what Paul said about the wrath of God upon these people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There are so many misapplications of Scripture and missing the full force intended originally by not seeing the importance of the destruction of Jerusalem. God's people, God's city, God's temple, God's worship, God's priests, everything wiped away. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. The churches of God in Judea that were in Christ Jesus could be called the Hebrews. Please. The Hebrews. They're in Judea. They're Jews. They're the Hebrews. You Gentiles followed the Hebrew Christians. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Notice the tremendous persecution that the believing Hebrews took from their own countrymen, which they knew to be the people of God. Verse 15, who, that is the Jews, both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath shall come with the second coming of Christ upon them to the uttermost. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. When was Paul writing? Sometime around 55, 60, 65 A.D. Do you know how close it was? The first march on Jerusalem was 67 A.D. Tremendous warning. The wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. It will be utter desolation of the Jewish nation. And exhort one another, so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. And this was a day that Jesus Christ gave specific signs to know exactly when it's going to happen so that they could get out of their city and get into the mountains and be preserved from this great destruction. Oh, this adds so much. It makes the Bible a practical, readable, understandable book. Let's go back to John. I hope you didn't lose Matthew chapter 3. You did. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. John the Baptist sees these 
the hierarchy of the Hebrew nation coming out to be baptized. And he says to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And that wrath to come was come when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 because Paul said, it is come. He says in verse 8, Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. What are they? Love and good works. Provoke one another to love and to good works. What's going to preserve someone from the destruction of Jerusalem? Fruits meet for repentance. The evidence of true repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Sounds like some ground over there in Hebrews chapter 6 that God said He's going to reject, curse, and burn. Remember? Hebrews 6, 8. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You say, that sounds like unquenchable fire. It was. It wasn't quenched until it burned everything there was to burn. It was unquenchable fire. It burned the city of Jerusalem to the ground. And that is what is intended there. Jesus Christ came with that fan in his hand, and he'd thoroughly purge his floor. What does Malachi chapter 3 pre preach? He shall thoroughly purge the tribe of Levi, that they may offer unto the Lord offerings and sacrifices acceptable. Malachi chapter 3. And those are in his elect. He's, all made, he's made them all kings and priests. So much could be tied together that I'm running out of time and I'm getting frustrated. But for you to see, as you read through the Word of God and you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Hebrews, and First and Second Peter, and the book of James that are written to the circumcision, that are written to Hebrews, remember when it was written. 40, 50, 60 A.D. Remember what was coming. Jesus Christ spent His ministry. Believe on me or I'll crush you. John the Baptist's ministry was, repent or you're going to be burned. So many want to run that into eternal life. Listen, you don't repent to save eternal hellfire, but there sure was repentance to save the fires that burned Jerusalem and the tremendous tribulation that was brought on that nation. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Let's see the word of Jesus Christ. This message was so well known. Paul didn't have to elaborate. He All he had to do was mention a day approaching and a day that could be seen. And there's only one such day mentioned in the New Testament that can be seen coming where the Savior clearly said, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. When you see all these things happen, know that it's coming. When you see, flee. When you see, flee. When you see, it's coming. When you see, it's this generation. Matthew 21, these are the words of the Savior I worship. Verse 40, After He had sent many servants, which were emblematic or figurative of His prophets, God then sends His Son. Verse 40, When the Lord, that is God, therefore of the vineyard, that is Israel, cometh, 
What will he do unto these husbandmen? That is the people of the Jews. They say unto him, the Pharisees knew what would happen. He will miserably destroy these wicked men. He'll miserably do it. It won't be an easy judgment. It would be a miserable persecution and tribulation poured out on that wicked nation. He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. And who are those other husbandmen? Thank God he had mercy on tree-worshiping Gentiles. Were the other husbandmen. And God has blessed the Gentiles to bring forth fruit for the last 1,900 years since the gospel was given to us. Jesus saith unto them, verse 42, Did you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Jesus Christ's message of peace. Come unto me, and you'll have peace. Don't come unto me. I'll grind you to powder. I didn't make those words up. I'll grind you to powder. Those are the words of the Savior I worship. Look at Matthew chapter 22. Describing the blessings of the gospel offered to the Jews and here described as a marriage and wedding feast. Verse 7, But when the king heard thereof, that is, that he abused, that these servants abused his messengers and would not, and refused to come. You know, they would not take God's rest offered them in Hebrews 3 and 4. Matthew 22, 7, When the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That's describing what happened in 70 A.D. They refused the gospel blessing. They refused to come to the wedding. They refused to participate in the rest God offered them. One generation tried it before. One generation tried it before. Back there in Numbers chapter 14, what God do to them, He dropped every one of their carcasses miserably over a 40-year period in the wilderness. This generation had the opportunity of rest. They refused it. And he burned up their city. And he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers. Who were the greatest, what was the greatest group of murderers this world has ever seen? But those that crucified the Lord of glory. Let me warn you. Most of us came from churches where there was never anything taught about the destruction of Jerusalem. Every one of these passages was applied eternally. It is a fact that everything you apply eternally loses reality because eternal things in the Bible itself tells us eternal things are not seen. The things which are not seen are temporal. The things that are seen are temporal. Every time you take a passage of Scripture and blow it way off in the future, at the second coming, we don't know anything about that. We haven't been there. We can't read about it. We don't. It reduces the reality that Jesus Christ judges in this world for those that reject Him. But when you read about the destruction of Jerusalem and you read about women, delicate, 
honorable women of society by name recorded by Josephus that ate their children in the siege because it was so bad in fulfillment of God's very word that the woman that was so delicate she wouldn't be able to put the sole of her foot on the ground for her delicateness would eat her own children. That happened in 70 A.D. God miserably destroyed that nation, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And when you read about that, and when you realize that God does judge practically and now and not everything can be relegated way out in the future, which judgment out in the future never affects God's people anyway? So as long as you've come forward and accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're forever safe from the judgment of God. Anyone that knew the gospel of Jesus Christ and was a Hebrew and forsook it and did not hold fast their profession and went back in were destroyed by Almighty God right along with the murderers. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. This is a few verses later. The Lord shall judge His people. Oh, and we can bring some of these passages down and realize Paul was writing with great urgency for the practical judgment that was coming and the practical tribulation that was coming and exhorting them to hold fast their profession. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, Jesus Christ preached of this day, this approaching day over and over again. Matthew 23, verse 34. I could read a number of verses here. Wherefore, behold, Jesus tells us, tells the Hebrews, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Let upon you, not the world in 1989, but upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. It was that generation of Jews that Paul was addressing in the book of Hebrews. Hold fast your profession, those of you that have believed on Christ, because judgment's coming. Exhort one another and do it more so as you see that day approaching. Luke 19, verse 41. When Jesus was come near, He beheld the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, this is verse 42, Luke 19, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That nation of Israel had been blessed with prophets and messengers and scribes over and over and over again. And when the Son of God finally visited them and they rejected Him, they were worthy of the greatest judgment God ever poured out practically in this world. And He poured it out upon them. 
because they knew not the time of that visitation. And any Hebrew that had bought the gospel of Jesus Christ, had followed it, had made a profession of faith, faith, had been baptized into that profession, and then forsook it, and went back into Judaism, they were by their actions trampling the Son of God underfoot, after having known Him, then saying, a blood, a bullock, and His blood can do me more good than the Son of God. They were trampling the Son of God under their feet. They were counting the blood of the covenant a common, unholy thing, and they were doing despite the Spirit of grace, which was the great blessing of that new covenant. And anyone that did that made themselves equal to and worse than the murderers that hung Him on a cross, practically speaking. And He poured out His judgment on those that did not take advantage of this thy day of peace. The time of thy visitation. Look at Luke chapter 21. Luke 21 verse 20. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. See it. As ye see the day approaching. When ye see, then you know it's coming. You know it's approaching. What? the desolation of Jerusalem. Verse 21, Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them which are in the countries enter therein too. Even if you live in the country, get out of Judea. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And then he goes on to describe other aspects of that judgment. These be the days of vengeance, Exhort one another to hold fast your profession as ye see the day approaching. What a practical, powerful application if we see it addressed to the Hebrews in the way that Paul intended it. What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost when he stood up in a great multitude and wondered what was going on? And he preached that this is the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied, that in the last days God would pour out of His Spirit. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And do you know what Peter used for his conclusion to that sermon? And with many other words did he testify and exhort, save yourselves from eternal damnation in hell. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Exhort one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Because by exhorting one another, and remembering the words they had been taught, and holding fast their profession that Jesus Christ was coming back to judge, they would all be saved from that untoward generation. And we read about great multitudes that fled Jerusalem and Judea and went into a place called Pella, the mountains of Pella. They were near the, on the other side of the Jordan River and stayed there and were preserved while the Romans put a siege on the city of Jerusalem and laid it even with the ground. They were preserved. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. There's other references. This was the day that was most important to a Hebrew mind that had already been taught by Jesus Christ and about Jesus Christ and knew the message of the prophets. If we were to read Matthew 24, and I'm out of time, so we're not going to read it. Matthew 24 describes the love of many waxing cold and iniquity abounding. What did Paul tell us? And he, I'm trying to put the Scriptures together for you this morning. What did Paul say in Hebrews chapter 10? Consider one another 
to provoke unto love. The love of many shall wax cold. Iniquity shall abound. Provoke them unto love and good works. They would be betraying one another. Members of families would be betraying one another. Matthew chapter 24. There'd be famines. There'd be wars. There'd be rumors of wars. There'd be earthquakes in divers places. It was going to be a time of trouble and tribulation leading up to the great tribulation, which would be the actual siege. And Paul is arguing that point right in agreement with the Lord Jesus Christ in a message to a nation that is the nation of the Hebrews that had believed on Jesus Christ. In conclusion this morning, don't think to yourself that that is written to the Hebrews without any application or warning to us. We have had our time of visitation. Jesus Christ has visited us through His Word. We have learned of Christ through His Word. We have heard of Christ through His Word. The sacrifice of Christ has been opened to us. We understand the means by which we can enter the holiest. We know our sins are forgiven. We have been blessed with an understanding and knowledge of the truth of the gospel like no other people that we know of as Gentiles. The Bible warns us of a principle called the principle of knowledge or the principle of privilege. That's why God judged the Jewish nation so severely. Behold, therefore, the severity of the Lord, Romans chapter 11, because they had had such great privilege and had taken the great privilege for granted. Brethren, we've had the great privilege, and God will not wait forever on Gentile churches that forsake Him and live in sin and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I read about the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, I believe it is, where that woman Jezebel was preaching and teaching the people there to commit fornication and eat meat offered to idols, that the Lord gave her a space of time to repent. And because she hadn't repented in her space of time, He was going to cast her and her children into a bed and destroy them. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. There are, under the sound of my voice here and other places that will hear it by tape, those that have not obeyed yet the gospel of Jesus Christ, those that have not yet made a profession of faith, those that have not yet washed their bodies with pure water in baptism. You have heard the warning you either fall on Jesus Christ as your Savior or He'll fall on you and grind you to powder and the righteous shall rejoice. I rejoice at what happened in 70 A.D. They murdered my Savior and they laughed then. He who laughs last laughs best. They laughed as the Son of God hung on the cross and God laughed at them as they realized what was coming upon them, that God had turned all the forces of this world against that nation. He left them demon-possessed seven times worse than when He came on the scene. That's one category of people. There's another category of those that have heard the gospel, believed it, rejoiced in it, loved it, been baptized in it, made a profession of faith, brought forth some fruit. Then they fall away. They depart. They return to their vomit 
They return to their wallowing. Are we going to be guilty of that, brethren? If we're guilty of that, we are just as guilty as those that never came. And we will have the judgment of God heavy and hot and hard upon us as it was upon the Jews in 70 A.D. He has granted us privilege. And there is a principle of privilege in the Word of God that if you take for granted God's privilege, He will grind you to powder. You say, that's an awful demanding God. I love it, don't you? I love it. A demanding God. A perfect plan of salvation. The most infinite blessings and promises that could ever be given to sinful men. And if you don't like them, take the consequences. I choose, brethren, this morning to make a profession of faith that Jesus Christ is my only hope of salvation and what He has said, I will do regardless of who stands with me or what happens. They may kill the body, but they cannot do anything after that. And big deal if they kill the body. He is able to cast both body and soul into hell. I fear Him. Let us hold fast our professions. We've all made professions. We've been baptized. We've washed our bodies. Let's hold it fast. Let's consider one another. We live in a late day. And brethren, we can see in general, in general that obviously we're 2,000 years closer to the second coming of Christ than others that believed. Paul put it this way, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And if Paul could say nearer, how much nearer is it now? 2,000 years after Paul said that. Jesus Christ will return another time. He returned in judgment on the city of Jerusalem. When He returns this time, Will you meet Him with confidence or will you be ashamed? Cast not away your confidence. Hold fast your confidence. Let us maintain good works and provoke each other to that end that we may please a most glorious Savior. For He is not only Savior, but He is also the Lord that said, Vengeance is mine. I will judge my people. May God bless us to hold fast our professions.